Hello and welcome to Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. Oftentimes in the Longevity Forum, members discuss the latest strategies and therapies that could help battle aging. In this era of rapid progress, there are an incredible number of new supplements that might provide some benefit. However, it can be difficult being a biohacker because of regulations varying from country to country. Many often wonder whether or not the regulations could be streamlined, updated more rapidly, or loosened somewhat. Today's podcast guest is someone who has worked inside and out of the pharmaceutical industry. Find out what she thinks would be best for the future of health and rejuvenation. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, the author of Death by Regulation, Dr. Mary Ruart. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Justin. I'm glad to be here. First, Dr. Ruart, would you give the listeners just a little brief biography of your background in the regulation and industry of medicine? As far as my medical background, I have a bachelor's in biochemistry, a PhD in biophysics, postdoctoral work in surgery, and uh, I was an assistant professor of surgery for a while and then went on to the Upjohn Company for 19 years. After that, I consulted. Um, I've been an expert witness. I chair a for-profit IRB, and um, I've done some miscellaneous things like doing research for legal briefs and things of that nature, as well as uh, helping patent lawyers with patent searches. Okay. Well, you've been in the business, in the industry for a long time, and you've seen it inside and out, and you've testified with the FDA. What brought you to the point where you wrote the book, Death by regulation, it's quite the imposing title, quite the dramatic title. Uh, what brought you to that at this point? Well, throughout the years, I've been giving little talks on regulation. And in recent years, there's been enough research done so that you can actually calculate the harm done by the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act. Which, which are the amendments that gave the FDA its teeth, so to speak. And, of course, I was in the industry when these regulations were taking effect because they didn't take effect immediately, and they were structured in such a way they're open-ended. So they continue to metastasize today throughout the system, and it's all very hidden unless you're in the industry and research and have to deal with the FDA it's really hard, even for a dedicated journalist, to figure out what's really going on. So as I started giving these talks, I had a lot of people approach me and say, hey, you need to write a book on this. And I finally decided to do that. And so that's what happened. That's how Death by Regulation came about. Okay, so this was way back in 1962 that these changes were made, and you make a good point that they have caused quite a bit of impact in the development of therapies and nutritional, you know, nutritional programs. Um, it seems, though, did it take a long time uh, for these to come into effect? I know you kind of alluded to that. Do you see mm -hmm. that there are changes in the modern day? Is it getting worse or better as far as... Oh, it's as getting a lot worse. Yeah, a lot worse. It a lot is. Worse. In what yes. ways? Well... What's happened is, as time's gone on, the FDA has used the amendments to expand its reach, if you will. 
So just to give a modern example, you know, stem cell research for a long time was considered medical practice. And then one very enterprising uh, doctor in the US, probably one of the top, if not the top stem cell docs, found that if he took stem cells from a person's body and grew them in a test tube for about a week and then injected them back into the person instead of doing it the same day, that the result was much better. The FDA said, whoa, wait a minute. If you take stem cells out of a person and inject them back into them the same day, it's medical practice. But if you grow them up for a week, oh, then they're drugs and they have to go through the same process that other drugs have to go through. And just to give your listeners an example, you know, the, in general, it's somewhere between 12 and 14 years to get a drug on the market. So this really, of course, delays things very much. And, and this is how the FDA has encroached. Now, in terms of inexpensive prevention, which I know this is a topic that's very important to your listeners, it really has made it difficult because the FDA also says that if you make a health claim for a food or a supplement, it becomes a drug. And the courts have agreed with the FDA. So, for example, when Diamond Walnuts made, um, they didn't exactly make a health claim. What they said is, well, look, these scientific studies show that the components of walnut are good for you. And they put these scientific papers up on their website. And the FDA sent them a warning letter and say, hey, the way you're talking about your walnuts makes them a drug. So you need to go through the regulatory process. Now, how, does, course- how does that happen for most people? I mean, if you talk to 90% of the people on the street, 95%, I mean, the vast majority would say there's nothing wrong with pointing to the fact that certain <laughs> foods uh, promote health. I mean, everyone knows this. Well, how yes, does I mean- the FDA get into a position where they try to ban uh, this type of promotion? Well, because the 62 amendments said that you couldn't have a drug be marketed in the U.S. unless there was um, very detailed scientific studies that it worked. So when, when the FDA sees a supplement or a food making a health claim, they consider that it's a drug. And they actually took this into court and won, which is why... It is now possible for them to do that. Um, they were doing it earlier, but they, you know, they dragged it through the courts at one point, and and this is the the courts, you know, agreed with them. So this is very bad. Of what, course, what, yeah. What are the options? What are the options for this type of thinking to be reversed? I mean, it, it just blows my mind. I know a lot of listeners out there are aware of this type of thinking uh, at the FDA, and you know, I don't know if the FDA exactly thinks in their mind they're doing a good thing by this or if they're just following bureaucratic you know protocol and they have to do it or not uh, but how, how what's the prospects of getting this type of uh, thinking reversed and getting more uh, you know honest appropriate <laughs> labeling of healthy foods well it's very difficult because actually some people did take the FDA to court and said that they should be allowed to make health claims uh, for certain supplements. And they won. But the FDA paid no attention, so they had to drag them back into court years later. And the judge scolded the FDA and said, you know, you're 
you know, you, you may be being very uh, obnoxious here <laughs> by not following the court's orders, but that didn't really change anything. If you think about it, you know, what's going to happen to the FDA? I mean, really, how do you enforce a court order that tells the FDA they have to do things a certain way? It's actually very difficult because it's a government agency. What, what are you going to do? Fire them? You know? <laughs> mm. I, I guess that's right. Well, yeah, tell you what, though, out on the Internet and with people I talk to, uh, there obviously are a lot of supplements out there, and there are a lot of ways of getting a hold of research-type chemicals nowadays and nutraceuticals and all kinds of therapies. I mean, there are just labs right. all over the world where you can just order, uh, you know, small batches of peptides and who knows what. Sure. Uh, sure. It's all sure. out there, and it does seem to be expanding in spite of the FDA. Why is that? Oh, well, because it's the manufacturer. If the manufacturer makes the claim, then then the, the food or supplement becomes a drug. Now, if you or I make the claim, that doesn't happen. So the information that's getting out there is kind of getting out there mostly by third parties. Although, to be very honest, it's hard to police all the manufacturers because there's so many of them. So... The FDA tends to be very selective about who it prosecutes. Uh, and actually, when it started this process um, in the 70s and 80s, it was quite successful. Then it took on the Life Extension Foundation, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. They are. And, yes. And, and the reason they took the Life Extension Foundation on is they were, they were promoting uh, CoQ10 as a supplement and saying, you know, it had great benefits. Well, Japan had CoQ10 as a prescription drug, so the FDA felt it should be a drug, and they went after the Life Extension Foundation, and the um, founders were told by their attorneys that they had to cave, you know, they better plea and serve some time and be done with it. And they said, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they went on the radio and, and other forms of um, media and really denounced the FDA and, and explained about coenzyme Q and everything. And by the time it took, you know, years to go through the system, uh, they were vindicated totally. And that's been a great win really for all of us because, you know, the Life Extension Foundation has been able to operate at a level <laughs> that's somewhat different from uh, smaller companies. And they the have. FDA Tends, yeah, the FDA that. tends to go after the small companies because they know they don't have the money to defend themselves. Uh, well, it, now you bring up a, an interesting point about multiple jurisdictions across the world and how you know the FDA relied upon the fact that Japan considered CoQ10 as a drug, and in you know, Europe and different places have different regulations on different yes. things. Uh, mm -hmm. How much can does the FDA's reach go around the world? As far as companies, I, I suppose if they're selling anything in the U.S., then that's going to affect the U.S. Does the FDA cooperate with other regulatory agencies around the world as well? Um, somewhat, but there's also an international movement called Codex Alimentarius. And this Codex basically is trying to harmonize all the regulations. By harmonize, they mean they want to make them all the same throughout the world, but their basis is the most stringent regulations, which generally speaking are the U.S. FDA. Although in some countries, some countries have accepted uh, more stringent regulations. I know back about uh, 10 or 15 years ago, Germany actually accepted 
the fact that if you wanted more than 100 milligrams of vitamin C, you should have a prescription. So that was very difficult, you might imagine, for Germans. I mean, I, I take a couple thousand milligrams a day, so <laughs> that, would have been, that would have been a problem. Okay, so you expect that if Codex continues to be a popular form of spreading regulation, that things might get a little more stringent for oh yes oh yes people oh, and what does that do for the prospects of medical tourism a lot of people who want special treatments will go to different countries oh, yes. uh, to get those treatments now you'd think this would be very popular and that more people would vote for politicians who allow this because they want to live they want to be healthy of um, course do you think the uh, medical tourism is going to expand and become easier, or do you think the regulatory agencies are going to crack down more? Well, it's hard for the regulatory agencies to actually crack down on true medical tourism because most of that's medical practice. In other words, you need a surgery, you go to an area where it's inexpensive but yet high quality. Um, now, as far as supplements go, obviously every country is somewhat different, <laughs> but it's probably not going to be all that difficult to get supplements from other places simply because it's very hard to police. And that's even true for drug importation today. You know, it's, it's hard to police. It's hard to know what package is actually coming. Obviously, if a manufacturer is big enough that it's been tagged, so to speak, by the U.S. Post Office, it becomes much easier. But, you know, FedEx, for example, and other, other types of... Um, companies that handle the mail, so to speak, <laughs> mm -hmm. and packages, they, they can usually get things to you. So customs may be an issue. You know, that's, sure. that's the problem is when you come through customs. And With a product. Sure. Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, now, obviously, from the uh, title of your book, Death by Regulation, and your experience with the FDA, uh, you have realized that, yeah, uh, the FDA seems to be holding back progress and seems to be making things so much more expensive. What do you think is a more appropriate level of government regulation, in your ideal expert opinion? Okay. Well, Oh, you know, I just noticed I'm frozen. <laughs> Am I frozen on your end? No, your your audio is still oh. coming through. Okay, so you're good. Okay. So, uh, yeah, give me your answer uh, if you could. Are you hearing me now? Yes, I hear you. Oh, okay. I just can't. Uh, so, the question again. The question just, again is. What do you think is the appropriate level of regulation? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, obviously in my book, since all I'm really doing is talking about the 62 amendments, what I recommend in my book is that we get rid of them. But because we have all these court cases, they aren't really going to go away <laughs> because it's, you know, it's now in the court cases that if you make a claim, if a manufacturer makes a health claim for their product, it's a drug. So, so, that so what you're saying is it's settled law. Yes. Now, those amendments have been more solidified. That's correct. So okay, so it would be if people who would want to have loosen the regulations would have to go through the legislative process, basically. Yeah, and I think the process I would recommend is that we take the approval power away from the FDA. In other words, you can leave the FDA around for a certif certifying agency, 
but not a regulatory agency. And, and some of your listeners might not be aware of the difference. When something's certified, it's gotten a seal of approval from either a government agency or a private organization, but you as a consumer don't have to listen to it. You can say, yeah, I don't care what they say, I'm gonna buy it anyhow. So if, if we leave the FDA in place as a certifying agency, we will have other certifying agencies, and there's a long history of this. So like we consumer know- Consumer reports. Yeah, uh, well, or, or UL, you know, all our UL, right. appliances are certified. They aren't regulated, and that's worked out just fine for us. I mean, there's a life-threatening situation if you don't do it right. But what's nice about UL is that our underwriters laboratory, they work with the manufacturer. So if the product isn't good, UL tells them how it could be, you know, how it could meet their standards and works with them so that, you know, it's it's a more, it's, I'm going to say, it's a less adversarial type of, of thing. Uh, in the drug industry, you never know what the FDA is going to really do. And since they can shut you down really at any time, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an adversarial situation. Now, if you, if you, actually talk to drug companies, they won't admit to that because anything they say that's negative to the FDA, they can be punished for. The FDA can drag their feet on the approvals or on any step of the process. And there's no real way to prove that they're dragging their feet, you know, so uh, it, it's very difficult. So uh, my recommendation is that we, you know, again, make the FDA a certifying agency. Ideally, I have um, a more libertarian view. I'm not sure there should be any regulation at all. But in my book, I, I only make the case for the 62 amendments. So that's sure. that's how so, I limit my recommendation. So you must be fairly uh, positive on the development of the right to try legislation then. Oh, a yes. step in the oh, right yes. direction. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, the, the Achilles heel with right to try, and I've talked to the Goldwater Institute about this, and, and they understand this, um, is that the right to try drugs, even if they're given to patients that want them, and the drug companies are working around the FDA to give them those drugs, this this makes a very dangerous situation for the drug companies. They're going to be afraid that the FDA is going to punish them, as we just talked about. So there's going to be, I think, right to try is a step in the right direction, but it's going to be of limited uh, value, at least at first. I, now, the, my way, the way I look at it is it's a publicity factor. The drug yes. companies don't want to get bad publicity from trying something experimental, but also the FDA doesn't want to get bad publicity for not you know, going through 10 years of testing on every single, you know, treatment. Yeah. Uh, and the, the media doesn't care when someone is going to die. It's going to happen. Someone's going to die from some experimental treatment or maybe a handful of people because it was experimental. But they willingly tried it because they were going to die anyway. But that doesn't matter. The media is going to come down hard on the FDA, yes. come down hard on whoever made that drug. Isn't there a way to prepare people for that? eventuality and say, hey, listen, this is going to benefit people in the long run. So don't overreact when obviously there are going to be cases where people are going to die. Well, actually, the criticism I've seen hasn't come from the average no? person. It's come from no, it's come from the uh, um, it's come from other IRB chairs. When uh, I totally disagree with them. It's come from healthcare professionals. And they say the problem is, we don't have any way to protect these people and keep them safe. Well, if you're terminally ill, 
you aren't safe. That's life, you know? (laughs) So (laughs) you don't have, um, there is no safety for you if you're terminally ill. Uh, The only thing you can do is try something that might help and it might harm. And that has to be a personal decision. Yeah, well, talking about uh, personal decisions and right to try, uh, for the listeners out there, what do you do personally to stay healthy and so young looking? <laughs> well, um, I have been I have been on something very similar to the zone diet for most of my life. Um, I eat a little less carbs than the zone diet uh, usually uh, recommends, partly because I have the diabetic genes and I don't want to get diabetes. Now, one of the wonderful breakthroughs that your listeners might not be aware of, but might want to be aware of, <laughs> are several new things that have come out. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is continuous glucose monitoring. You know, a diabetic stick their finger, but really that's not so helpful because each meal you eat has a different time curve. The peak is in a different place. But now um, a product that used to be available in many European countries, but not here, is now available here. It's the Freestyle Libra Continuous Monitoring System. It's Freestyle Libra, L-I-B-R-E, and it comes in two parts. There is um, a a sensor that basically is a little needle that you put in your arm and it, it's, it's, it's comes in a patch about this big and it sticks on your arm for about 10 days. You can wear it to shower in and things like that. And it's got the chemicals to measure your glucose. And then to do that, you take something that's about half the size of your cell phone called a monitor and you just swipe it over your arm and you look at it and you get an eight hour graph of what your glucose is. This is extremely helpful because, you know, you eat a meal and you think it's a good meal for you in terms of keeping your blood glucose low. You look at the meter and go, oh, that's not so good. (laughs) (laughs) Or something that you might have thought was pretty bad and you look at it and go, okay, I can handle that. So I'm sure all your listeners know that keeping your blood sugar down is a really important part of longevity because you don't want to have hyperinsulinemia and then get type 2 diabetes. That's bad. So this little gadget, which is actually, it's not all that expensive, really can help. So the the monitor is about, at Walgreens, I pay about $78 for it. The sensors are about $44. And of course, you, you only buy the monitor once. And the sensors you buy, you know, as often as you want to do it. And you can, you can actually mark in the little um, monitor when you've had a meal or if you've taken insulin or anything. You know, and, and you can download it to your computer. So I take notes of my meals, and then I can compare it to what I see on the computer and, and know what's going on. Of course, I know what's going on already because I've been watching it like 20 times a day. You mentioned you had two or three exciting things, uh, other, te- other, yes. other technology yes. or other uh, therapeutics yes. that you've noticed recently? Well, other, other technology. So um, in addition to having the diabetic genes, my family has a lot of cancer. And of course, the problem with cancer is that if you catch it too late, you're really in trouble. So there are blood tests now, uh, some of which are actually paid for by Medicare that most doctors don't know about, but you can actually find out early on if you have cancer, about a couple of years in advance of seeing it on imaging. The first test is called the AMAS test. And it, what it does is it measures an antibody that your body makes whenever you get cancer. 
And in the early stages of cancer, it's quantitative, even though the manufacturer doesn't advertise it as such. If you look at the research papers, it's pretty obvious. Uh, and the reason they don't advertise it, if you're late stage cancer, your body finally gives up and quits making the antibodies. So then the, the numbers go down and it can be confusing. But I use it to detect early cancers and so do my family members. Now, if of course, all it does is say you have cancer somewhere. So then you need to know where is it? <clears throat> so there's another test called ENOX2, E-N-O-X hyphen two. And what this, this measures is the different, um, um, the different surface antigens on the cancer cells. It can detect about, I think, 28 different cancers. So, for, for example, what I did is I saw my AMAS test was going up. I had had breast cancer about 13 years prior. And so I took the ENOX2, found out it was breast, and it took about two years for the imaging to see it. But because I caught it so early, <laughs> you know, I was able to, uh, I was able yeah. to control it quite well. Um, so great. Well, that yeah, sounds so, great. Yeah. So this is something, you know, since cancer is like uh, the number two thing that people die of, right. and they usually die of it because they don't catch it soon enough. It's already metastasized. Once that's happened, you're in real trouble. So this is another little nugget that is out there sure. and Medicare actually pays for the AMAS test. It doesn't pay for ENOX2. ENOX2 is about $800. Uh, AMAS, the test itself is paid for, but it doesn't pay for the shipping and dry ice, which is about another 125. So, <laughs> but still, if, you, if you're prone to cancer, your family's prone to cancer, if you're a cancer survivor, you know, these tests can save your life. So that's cheap. <laughs> well, there are definitely some positive things to look forward to. Uh, Dr. Ruart, thank you so much for being an advocate for patients, and good luck in the future as well. Thanks for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Of course, there are diverse opinions about the levels of regulation. What's helpful? What's harmful? Dr. Ruart thinks there should be changes to speed the development of life extension therapies. No matter your opinion, don't forget that change happens when you are involved. If you want to affect future regulations, you might need to go the extra step and contact your government representatives. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.